Welcome to the BIOS podcast by Elix Ventures. BIOS is a community of early stage healthcare and life sciences founders and investors. BIOS curates content, hosts events, crafts resources, and creates a community to facilitate collaboration. BIOS unites like-minded members of the startup universe and is anchored by Alix Ventures, a San Francisco-based venture fund that invests in early-stage healthcare and life sciences companies. To learn more about us, visit bios.community or alix.vc. Thanks for tuning in, BIOS community, sharing a quick shout out from Amazon Web Services. The AWS Startups team provides dedicated resources, expertise, and credits to help healthcare and life sciences startups grow and excel. We help startups build for scale, overcome technical and regulatory challenges, and accelerate time to market by opening doors and creating business opportunities. To learn more about these resources, including how to access $25,000 in AWS credits through our partnership with BIOS, please email hcls-startups at amazon.com. We're thrilled to welcome David Baker, professor at the University of Washington, director of the Institute for Protein Design and a pioneer in the protein engineering space to the show today. Uh, Thank you once again for joining us. To help host this episode, I'm joined by my colleague, Chris Godbon, and special guest host, Michael Deem, former chair of bioengineering at Rice University and now entrepreneur residence at Coastal Ventures. Michael, can you give our listeners a bit of background on yourself? Thanks for having me on the show today, Chaz. I got my BS in chemical engineering from Caltech a number of years ago. Got my PhD from UC Berkeley, also in chemical engineering, working for David Chandler. Did a postdoc in physics with David Nelson at Harvard. My background is really statistical mechanics. I worked with a number of small companies through the years. Probably the first was Curigen. They had a nice IPO back in the late 90s. Probably the biggest one was Ion Torrent Systems. As you mentioned, I was at RISE for a while. I started the system synthetic and physical biology program there. That's the first PhD program in the country with synthetic biology in the title. I was chair of the bioengineering department and I really enjoyed working with companies throughout the years. And now I've entered the the investing area full-time as a venture capitalist. So happy to have David Baker on with us today. Fantastic, thanks once again for joining us, Michael. Uh, Let's kick things off, David. Can you share a brief intro with us? Yeah, I'm a professor at the University of Washington. I'm the director of the Institute for Protein Design, which we've started here. And uh, we are, um, uh, we're working to design really broad range of new protein molecules to address uh, 21st century uh, problems. Um, I'm uh, sort of an interesting twist that shows how uh, interdisciplinary this field is. I'm also an ad- I'm a professor of biochemistry, but I'm adjunct professor of physics computer science, genome sciences, bioengineering, and chemical engineering, and probably a few more I forgot. Amazing. Thanks once again for joining us. And I think maybe to help our listeners get a bit of background, uh, would love to take a step back. Um, You began your undergraduate journey uh, in philosophy, actually, at Harvard before moving into uh, biology. I'm I'm curious to ask, not throughout your career, what's been your North Star, if you will, kind of the common thread tying all of your work together? See, it's really pushing the frontiers, uh, discovering new things, uh, trying to imagine a better world, and then pushing in that direction. Those have really been the dom- things that have sort of dominated my thinking over the years. And one question we love to ask our guests before we kick things off and embark on this episode uh, comes from Dennis Gabor, electrical engineer, recipient of the 1971 Nobel Prize in Physics. 
he says the future cannot be predicted, but the future can be invented. Can you share with us what does inventing the future mean to you? Yeah, I completely agree with, with that quote. Um, I think the, the course of innovation and technology development absolutely cannot be predicted. I think history has shown that over and over and over again. I think the way we invent the future is by relentless innovation guided by assessment of the most powerful ways forward at any moment. So I like to tell people when they ask me about what to predict the future, I, I like to say, and I think it's true that I have a pretty good three month horizon. You know, there's so many things happening here at our institute and in my lab that, uh, you know, at any given point, you know, the important thing is to see that the next best, the, the next really critical step and, and how to take advantage of, of the advances so far to really uh, push forward and make the new ones and also see the way towards um, just seeing, seeing, seeing the directions to go, but on a sort of a shorter term basis. Um, and, and so, you know, three months seems short, but, um, but if you make the best choices every, and you're maximizing innovation every three months and the cumulative effect over years can be really transformative. And the, um, and, you know, and if things are moving fast, then the advances you make in a three month period over, or say over a six month period uh, will completely change the game. And so any predictions you might've made six months earlier uh, would no longer likely hold or be relevant. So I think inventing the future is, uh, is much more interesting and useful than predicting the future, I'd say. And I'll pass it off to Chris now to talk about our first topic, protein design and protein structure prediction. Thank you, Chaz and David, again, for being here with us today. And I love your description of relentless iterative innovation. It sounds like that perfect segue for our first topic. So David, for over 25 years now, you've been laser focused on the structure and folding of proteins. In your opinion, what are some of the first principles of protein design and how have they helped shape your vision? The, uh, well, first of all, is I think everyone, on the, everyone listening to this knows proteins carry out essentially all the important functions in, in living systems. And they evolved over billions of years in response to the challenges that were faced during evolution. Uh, we face new challenges today. And so, and, and we don't want to wait for, you know, another hundred million years for, uh, for proteins to, um, to evolve. So the general question or challenge is, can we learn from, can we be inspired biology by biology and design a whole new set of proteins and protein-like molecules because we don't have to be confined to, you know, nature's alphabet to solve current day problems in medicine, um, you know, and more generally in energy and technology. So, of course, the, the key principle that um, sort of the basis for this is that proteins have very complicated structures and functions, and these can be completely encoded in amino acid sequences. Um, and so for, for many years, we really focused on the, we were driven by our, our sort of motivating picture was that proteins fold to their lowest free energy states. And so if you can, if you can accurately compute the energy of different protein conformations, then not only can you predict structure from sequence, but you can design new sequences that fold up to new structures. And no more recently, uh, deep learning is giving sort of an alternative perspective on this where we can uh, basically, instead of, we still have the mapping from sequence to structures, but rather than seeing that as a search for the lowest energy state, it's, it's more of a, a pattern recognition problem. I, I basically being able to recognize that a sequence folds to a given structure. And so in either picture, the, once, you have, once you can go from sequences to structures, you can then turn it around to go backward from 
from um, new structures we invent on the computer to solve some current day challenge back to sequences that encode them. And then we can then encode those sequences in synthetic DNA, make the proteins and see whether they actually solve the problem. David, of the three primary approaches to protein engineering, namely directed evolution, rational design and de novo design, what has really led you to focus on de novo design? Well, directed evolution is very powerful. If you have a, a, a protein that already exists in nature and you want to uh, develop a function which is related to that, then um, you can start with that and mimic the natural evolutionary process by introducing random substitutions and selection and doing this iteratively. And uh, Francis Arnold and others have shown that's an incredibly powerful method for creating new functions. Um, but, the, uh, but directed evolution can't build new functions from scratch. And so you're always gonna be limited to functions that are related to things that naturally occurring proteins already do. And your solutions are of necessity also going to resemble the natural solutions that nature has found. And so if you imagine all of sequence space, which is really, really enormous for a, for a hundred residue protein, there are on the order of 10 to the 130th possible sequences. And na nature has just sampled a very, very tiny fraction of that space, maybe 10 to the 15th or 10 to the 20th sequences. And directed evolution kind of samples the space right around those sequences. But there's this huge, much, much larger space of sequences, which really hasn't been explored at all uh, by nature. And that's the space that de novo design um, can explore, which is really exciting. David, tell us more about this intersection of protein design and protein structure prediction. Well, so the protein structure prediction problem is going from amino acid sequences to the three-dimensional structures of proteins they encode. And whether you treat that as a search for the lowest energy state or a problem that you feed into a neural network. In either case, you feed in the sequence and you produce a structure. The design problem is, um, is for example, you know, inhibit this protein that is involved in cancer. And so there you come up with it, you design on the computer a shape that will fit into and block the protein that you're trying to inhibit. Um, and then the problem, after you come up with a structure that has that property, you need to find a sequence which will fold up to that structure. And that's exactly the inverse problem. So again, whether you are predicting structure you, as a, um, by searching for the lowest energy state or by using um, a neural network like RosettaFold or AlphaFold, in either case, you can turn it around and, and now given the structure, search for a sequence which has the property that it is predicted to fold to that structure. For a couple of decades, you developed Rosetta, now Rosetta Fold. How do these technologies fit into this protein engineering effort? Well, exactly as I've described. So at, we, we first, when I, when I first came to the University of Washington, we focused on the, the, the fundamental problem of protein folding. Uh, we studied proteins experimentally in the lab, watched how they fold, and we encoded insights from those studies into uh, the first version of Rosetta, which was really focused on going from sequence to structure by mimicking the folding process. Then after we achieved uh, reasonable success in predicting the structures of, of, amino, of proteins from their amino acid sequences, we realized we could go backwards and uh, starting from the structures, work backwards to find sequences that encode them. And uh, more technically, in Rosetta, uh, given a sequence searches for the lowest energy state of the protein chain. And for design, you start with a structure 
and you search for a sequence whose lowest energy state is that structure. Now, with Rosetta Fold, it's very, very similar. We, um, we work to develop a, um, a network that could predict structure from sequence. And now that we have that network, we can use it to design new proteins by, um, by specifying, for example, a particular functional site, uh, maybe a constellation of five or 10 amino acids. And then we, you, then we, um, we use Rosetta Fold to basically fill in the rest of that structure to uh, create a scaffold on which those functional amino acids sit. Taking, taking things a step further, David, you've mentioned before that protein engineering itself has taken a significant leap forward in the past five years. And you've also mentioned uh, just at the start of our call here today that you are a professor with a number of different departments at UW. So I'm curious to understand what interdisciplinary, especially technological advancements have been made and what knowledge has been gained that is driving this rapid progression now in protein engineering? It's a very, very exciting time because it's kind of at the confluence of many, many different disciplines. And um, so protein design has um, and protein engineering have really profited from really parallel advances in many areas. So I would say start for starting, starting, I mean, we've been, um, you know, uh, developing Rosetta and sort of protein design methodologies for a number of years, and really starting with very simple problems, like could we design a sequence which folded up to a stable structure that wasn't found in nature, and gradually adding in more and more sophisticated functions. Um, so I would say the first is sort of basic understanding of the science and software engineering um, and software development. Then the second is this, these calculations are extremely time intensive. So the, you know, the rapid increase in the power of computing and the amount of available compute power have made a huge difference. The kind of things we do now would not have been possible with the computing available 20 years ago. And then third, um, kind of the, geno the genomics revolution um, and everything that came with it have been really critical. So now when we're testing designs, after we've um, design, uh, found a sequence or designed a sequence that's predicted to fold up to a protein that has a function that we're, that, that, um, we're trying to design, uh, we, um, we can order a gene, a synthetic gene that encodes that protein, and it can be here in as, as, few, as few as three days. Then companies like Twist and Agilent have figured out how to scale uh, gene synthesis. So for cases where we want to get a lot of experimental feedback on many, many different designs, we can actually on the computer now design hundreds of thousands of different um, sequences and uh, uh, and uh, these companies can can send will send back a tube that encodes a hundred that, that is gene synthetic genes for a hundred thousand different hundred thousand different designs so when we experiment and then we've worked out sort of the high throughput experimental methods for screening all of those which gives us a huge amount of information to feedback to improve the model and then finally deep learning is really arriving has really arrived on the scene and that's uh, pushing what we can do even further ahead. Um, so it's really the confluence of many different um, advances in many different areas, which is making this area move so quickly. I would say the final one is that we're having some success in designing proteins that have new functions and we're spinning out companies that are advancing these. And that's creating more and more enthusiasm and more interest uh, in these methods. And so the other thing that's this isn't really a technology thing. This is more a human thing. We're getting, you know, really smart 
fantastic people from all over the world coming here with bringing their own ideas in and um, sort of learning, you know, and contributing to the very rapid forward pace of this field. Taking things uh, a step further again, are there additional technologies or platforms that will push protein design to maybe its next leap? And that includes things, just as you said, uh, potentially like the Foldit platform you brought together, highlighting and drawing on humanity's willingness to, to cooperate to bring innovation forward. Yes, uh, thank you for bringing that up. Foldit has been very exciting um, and it's been really wonderful to see um, how, how quickly uh, non-scientists have been able to get up to speed with a fairly complex problem like protein folding and protein design and, uh, does, and first predict structures now design new structures of um, design new proteins. And we're, we've been testing them in the, in the lab and many of them uh, actually fold as designed, which is really incredible. Um, I think there are, there are a number of, of new technologies that are being developed that will really help. As I mentioned, uh, nature just uses 20 amino acids, but there's no particular reason. Those, it's almost a historical accident. And there are many, there's a much wider palette, both of amino acid types and uh, even protein backbone types that um, uh, can, uh, can help with, um, uh, can, can open the door to even larger combinatorial diversity. And so now they're, they're synthetic methods. Um, we're now designing uh, molecules that have neither natural protein backbones nor natural protein side chains, uh, but methods for making those on a large scale and making larger molecules um, are still challenging. So I think that's an area where, um, where, there, where continued development will have a big impact. Um, the, the deep learning methods are gonna continue to uh, improve and we're, we're really exciting, excited about pushing those forward. Um, I think mass spectrometry is starting to come online as, have, as being able to screen very large numbers of designs in parallel. Um, and then as we move more into thinking about design proteins as drugs, there's a lot we need to learn about biodistribution in the body um, and technologies that allow following uh, proteins, um, you know, the pharmacodynamics and stuff will, will, will help there as well. Quantum computing, David, is generating considerable interest in the life sciences, particularly with regards to protein design. We'd love to hear your thoughts on the potential applications of quantum and the timeline for realization. Well, I think quantum, quantum computing is very exciting for applications like protein design, but there still are a number of, 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 of technical challenges to work out. Uh, one is the sort of the accuracy of, of the models. This isn't really a, a, a problem so much for quantum computing particularly, but it's, it's more, you know, whether you're doing classical computing or quantum computing, sort of the accuracy of the energy functions that are involved. And um, so... Uh, well, I think there's tremendous potential. I think there still is quite a bit that needs to be worked out, um, and uh, uh, particularly with regard to model accuracy. As we as we transition now to our next topic, uh, we'd love to hear more about the Baker Lab and the Institute for Protein Design. And to start things off, here at Alix, we believe that the key to changing the world starts first with identifying the right problems to solve. So David, what would you say are the top pro, uh, problems protein design is poised to solve? Well, I can I, sort of in order of, I, I'd say where we're having the most impact already. I think uh, vaccines is up there. There'll be, um, uh, as I mentioned, the, the, uh, my colleague Neil King here has a, the Institute for Protein Design has a coronavirus vaccine that's in late phase three trials that will, that looks much more potent than the um, mRNA vaccines uh, that, um, 
That should hopefully be out next year. Um, we have uh, COVID therapeutics on the way to the clinic, um, cancer therapeutics. Um, and so I think vaccines and therapeutics are, are high up on the list of, of areas where protein design will make an impact. Um, we've been developing sensors, um, for example, for assessing the response to people after COVID vaccination. And uh, so I think there's a lot of potential for design proteins in, in sensors. Basically, any area where, where a naturally evolved protein will not be an optimal solution. Um, so in the case of vaccines, we've been designing these self-assembling nanoparticles that, that present the antigen in, in uh, very high valency and give much stronger responses. In the case of therapeutics, we can design proteins which are much smaller and cheaper to manufacture than antibodies. Um, other areas, improved catalysts has, you know, I think will have an, a huge impact on the world. Uh, they're still challenging. I'd say uh, uh, computational protein design is still not at the level of directed evolution in terms of creating really high activity enzymes, but I think we're getting closer. Um, nanomaterials, um, I think there's a lot of very exciting applications of protein design outside the medical realm and um, things like light harvesting, making very strong materials. Um, uh, biomineralization in nature. Um, you know, we have uh, materials like tooth and bone and, and shells that, seashells that were made out of proteins that, that nucleate the deposition of inorganic uh, minerals and mastering that process, I think will have big impact. So I'm, I'm afraid I'm not uh, really um, following your, uh, your maxim about focus because <laughs> I think there's a lot of areas where I think protein design can have Will, will, will have a very big impact. And um, uh, so those are at least some of them. And I think we're all excited to continue to see, and ideally many of us will be a part of that continued impact and change. So then let me, let me change the question slightly. How do you at the Baker Lab decide which challenges uh, to tackle? Well, there's a lot of different ways in which that happens. I mean, one of the, really the key thing, I think, is attracting really brilliant graduate students and postdocs and encouraging people to, to brainstorm constantly about new ideas and then to support people to pursue really, really innovative work. Um, so I have this picture of the communal brain. That's sort of a picture for the lab and the institute where, you know, everyone's talking to everybody all the time. And sort of the, the inspiration is that, you know, uh, systems with a few neurons, uh, you know, the now analogy, analogy is single researcher and a single neuron can do some things, you know, simple invertebrates, but when you get many neurons together and they're fairly high, very highly connected, as in the human brain, amazing things can happen. I've just seen this borne out over and over again. So there's a lot of social engineering here to try and just maximize interactivity. Um, and then, of course, that extends outside of my lab. So we try and work with really the top, top scientists around the world. Like in the, the areas I mentioned really span a very broad range, you know, from light harvesting to vaccinology. And so really uh, extending the brain to include really top scientists around the world has been really important. And um, yeah, so those are at least some of the principles. So we get, and also the other place where, you know, I get, I get emails, constant uh, stream of emails suggesting new collaborative uh, uh, projects with different people again around the world. And, um, so there's some, just, we have to be, we have to make some choices, but, um, this is just such an exciting time. I think just coming back to the point in the, 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 the question about areas, one of the ways in which you can answer the question about what, what areas will uh, protein design have an impact is to look at all the different processes that proteins have, 
uh, an impact on in biology. So they're clearly involved in light harvesting, you know, all of photosynthesis, they're, they're the materials or they, they catalyze the formation of materials. They do all of the chemistry in the body and in living things. And of course, they mediate the immune system. They, um, uh, they are responsible for the interactions between cells and cells and viruses. So I think this is one of the reasons why protein design is such huge potential and such wide impact is that proteins really do essentially everything in nature and biology has figured out how to do a lot of, solve a lot of different problems. Again, ranging from light harvesting to, you know, the immune system. David, can you tell us more about the Institute of Protein Design? Take us through, for example, the founding of the Institute of Protein Design and the Audacious Project. Yeah, so at the time the Institute was founded, almost 10 years ago, de novo protein design was just, was just, was really in its infancy, but it was clear already at then, at least to me, that there was considerable potential. And so the, the idea was to, with the Institute, was to really scale beyond just my lab and uh, to try and build up a translational side to the effort and um, that would then let, help us get the innovations out of my lab and into the world. And um, so we started a, a program at, when we started the Institute, soon after we started a, call a translational investigator program where graduate students and postdocs after they've you know, finished their PhDs or their postdoctoral training and written their big paper, instead of moving on to, a, to um, say become a faculty member at another institution, now have time, they now have a year or two to further develop their innovation and then to um, spin it out as a company. And this way, I think we're up to 13 companies now that are really covering a very wide range of areas. Um, then uh, we were partway, we were just getting sort of started in that. And then um, uh, we had had the first success with spin outs and then the audacious um, uh, project um, came along and there we were asked to, to um, uh, describe a vision for for how we could scale this um, with with um, uh, you know with further philanthropic support and uh, that that started a couple of years ago. We were very fortunate to um, to uh, be, be actually awarded um, uh, a, a gift from the um, well from all the all the philanthropists who are contributing to the Audacious Project. And it's been really exciting to see things scale. I mean, we have really everything we were doing then. Um, has really scaled, and I mean, we're we're the, the number of new companies and new innovations and exciting papers coming out, you know, every three months is is really kind of amazing. Could you tell us a little bit more and help flesh out the story for how the Institute of Protein Design has become the epicenter for protein engineering? Yeah, let's see. So, you know, I I've been been working on in this area for, for quite a while. And so we were gradually building up with um, Rosetta, sort of the core technologies. And one of the things that I decided at the beginning was to, well, I think was to basically encourage people who left my group to continue developing uh, the, Rosetta, the Rosetta software. And we've, many of us have started to say collaborating. We have, we have this really, really wonderful Rosetta Commons, which now involves, I think over a hundred institutions. Um, that are all collectively uh, developing the software. And because of that, um, you know, the, as a, it sort of become the industry standard, which is sort of, um, you know, made, I guess, in, in a sense, made the Institute for Protein Design the epicenter. And then I think, um, you know, it's, there's kind of a virtuous cycle because, you know, as we make advances, that, that's, 
that's led to attracting, you know, the best and the brightest grad students and postdocs from the around the world to want to come here. And then they come here and make the next set of advances. So, um, so you know, we aim for sort of like a, a Bell Labs sort of environment uh, where we're really kind of pushing the really focused on pushing ahead the technology um, as fast as we can with whatever the best methods are at the time. So, you know, we weren't doing much deep learning five years ago, but you know, I'd say. A large fraction of my group is now doing their deep learning now because it's you know um, so I think that ability I think it's the it's the again the kind of the relentless innovation and the constant pushing forward which has um, made it a fun place to be and helped attract really great people who have continued to push things forward. And as all of these people are believe in the idea and the potential of proteins, we'd be curious to hear your thoughts on comparing that potential to potentially other approaches, say for drug delivery or in smart therapeutics? How do proteins compare to alternative methodologies? Yeah, let's see. Well, the two major modalities of drugs currently are small molecules and antibodies. Um, antibodies are, are, are large molecules that um, can be quite expensive to produce and often are not very stable on their own. So you have to keep them you know, cold and you have to make them in mammalian cells. Um, and small molecules can be cheaper and don't have to be refrigerated, but they're often, you know, they're small enough so that it'd be hard to get a lot of binding specificity and affinity. And small design proteins kind of, uh, you know, fit, fit the space in between where they can have the, the, the affinity and specificity of antibodies, but the stable stability uh, of, um, of small molecules. And we've been doing a lot of work recently with smaller, with macrocycles and even and, and, and macrocycles that we chemically synthesize that retain many of the properties of proteins, but are smaller. So they're even more stable and they are, um, they can be orally available. As far as um, drug delivery, a lot of delivery schemes now use viral vectors, which are very powerful. But again, that's co-opting something from nature that didn't really evolve for that purpose. So we're, we're using the Novo design to create um, these nanoparticle self-assembling protein-based uh, uh, delivery systems. Um, and for smart therapeutics, uh, again, antibodies are kind of blunt instruments, um, but with, with designed proteins, we can incorporate logic into, um, so we can make multi, multi, multiple components um, that recognize uh, different cell surface receptors and uh, only get um, a uh, uh, induce an activity, for example, CAR T cell recognition and cell killing when there's a particular combination of surface markers present. And that, that's hard to do with, um, with antibodies. Thanks for tuning in, BIOS community, sharing a quick shout out from Amazon Web Services. The AWS startups team provides dedicated resources, expertise, and credits to help healthcare and life sciences startups grow and excel. We help startups build for scale, overcome technical and regulatory challenges, and accelerate time to market by opening doors and creating business opportunities. To learn more about these resources, including how to access $25,000 in AWS credits through our partnership with BIOS, please email hcls-startups at amazon.com. So David, we talked a bit about drug discovery. Let's follow that up. Let's follow up on drug discovery and talk a little bit about the connection with the research culture in your group. In recent years, your lab has given particular attention to this topic of drug discovery. How are the advances that we've discussed today in protein design pushing forward drug discovery? I think the big advance is that we can now build molecules completely from scratch. 
So you can design to spec if there are particular properties you want to have, for example, high stability, say small size for tumor penetration, um, uh, binding say multiple different targets, you can build those all in with design in a way that you can't really do with naturally occurring proteins and is difficult to do with antibodies. So for example, kind of the logic, uh, uh, building logic into uh, cellular recognition that I mentioned earlier is something that's really uh, very, very well suited to uh, protein design because you can, you can build all those properties in from the start. Are there some other protein-designed-led therapeutic approaches that you're particularly excited about? Yeah, so one of the, th there, there are many, um, and uh, I already mentioned self-assembling nanoparticle max vaccines. Uh, we can now design high-affinity small proteins that bind to arbitrary protein targets. We've gotten very good at, at this. And then I mentioned um, medicines that can do computation within the body. Um, there are um, the, I also mentioned um, uh, sort of macrocyclic peptide-based therapeutics. Um, there are, I think there are many different modalities. We're, we're working now on proteins that can cross the blood-brain barrier, um, proteins that can be orally available, proteins that treat gut disease. So there's a very wide range of, of hopefully soon to be translated uh, to new technologies. We talked a little bit about unnatural amino acids. As the protein engineering field explores and continues to think about the incorporation of non-canonical amino acids and the design of non-natural proteins, how do you envision their translation into healthcare, especially considering the potential impacts ranging from protein-protein interactions to the immune response? So there, there are two potential problems, as you mentioned, there's off-target effects, other types of interacting, unwanted interactions with say other proteins and, uh, and immune response. So I think the first one is not going to be a huge issue, the specificity, because in all the tests we've done with our design proteins, uh, they tend to be very, very specific for the, their intended target. And one way to understand that is they're pretty small, certainly compared to antibodies. And so they, um, and, and their binding surfaces are really sort of exquisitely designed to bind the target. And we typically don't see interactions with other host proteins. Immunogenicity is another story. Um, of course, new proteins are foreign, um, designed to know what design proteins are foreign. And I can, I, and so how the immune system in particular, the immune, human immune system will, uh, will deal with those is an open question. But I can say so far in, in model animals, we have not seen much immune response. And we think that's because the, the novel design proteins are very stable and very soluble. And so they're less, they're not likely to be taken up by dendritic cells. And once they're taken up, it's probably more difficult to break them down to present them. And also there are fewer peptides to present. Um, but I think we're gonna learn in the next few years uh, from the human clinical trials that are on, ongoing and will be uh, ongoing, um, the extent to which uh, humans make a response to them. Um, I think one of the issues about non-canonical amino acids, as I said, they great, they, they're really great for protein design because they're on the computer, they're made out of atoms and bonds, so you can model them just like you model normal amino acids. And you can also, as I mentioned, extend beyond natural protein backbones to other types of backbone structures. Their manufacturing is a challenge, and um, uh, so I would add that to the list of, of the, the greater difficulty of making compounds that incorporate unnatural amino acid side chains and backbones. As you mentioned, you've translated the science for patients through companies that you've co-founded, such as PVP 
biologics and neolucan therapeutics. What treatment gaps do these companies address today? Well, PVP developed really exciting new treatments for celiac disease, breaking down the peptides that cause the immune response to gluten. And neolucan now has in human clinical trials a de novo design protein, which has shown really amazing efficacy in cancer models in animals. Before we come to a close, a few rapid fire questions, if you will cap things off. Um, as we look forward here into the amazing world of protein design, um, would love to understand how that weaves into what we consider kind of the grand challenges in life sciences and would love in your eyes to understand what you think those would be over the next 30 years. Some of the ground challenges, uh, let's see. So infectious disease, I mean, that, the, the last year and a half has highlighted really the, 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 critical, uh, the, the, the critical need for better treatments for infectious disease, better vaccines, <clears throat> more rapidly generatable the vaccines, uh, better therapeutics, diagnostics. Uh, neurodegenerative disease is obviously becoming more and more critical concern that infects huge numbers of people. Cancer, of course, is... Um, a huge problem. And then outside of, outside of, um, of, of medicine, we have problems of, you know, climate change. We need better, cleaner energy. Uh, we're, you know, we have bioremediation, we're, we're messing up the environment. And I think all of these are areas where design proteins could have a huge impact. I mentioned artificial light harvesting systems. Um, I mentioned enzymes that could play a really important role in breaking down plastic, for example. It's one of the problems we're working on. So I think I'd say those are some of the major light grand challenges. So as, as you mentioned with infectious disease and the role that's played over the last year and a half uh, with, with COVID, um, speaking of the future, kind of as, as exciting as it is, there's also some, some caution that we should have in looking forward. Um, what role does ethics play in guiding development and the use of the protein design tools the Institute for Protein Design is building. Do you worry at all about potential applications for bioterrorism uh, as well as biodefense? Now, this is an important question. Um, my feeling is that nature has already perfected really nasty ways of killing large numbers of people quickly. Things like Ebola virus, you know, even the coronavirus, um, uh, botulinum toxin. Uh, so, um, so there's been a lot. There actually, unfortunately, has been selective pressure already for very sophisticated um, infectious agents or very deadly agents. And um, I think that someone who wants to do a lot of harm on a large scale doesn't have to look beyond nature. I mean, this was a big issue, of course, with the publication of the sequence of the 1918 Spanish flu, which is you know, one of the most deadly things to have ever appeared on earth. Those are all sort of public knowledge now. Um, so I think while there is potential for harm being done, the, the, um, I think it's gonna be a long time before you could make anything, before anyone could make anything that has the combination of functions which makes already existing viruses so, so lethal. And I don't think there's any, there would be much impetus for doing that given that the natural ones already exist. On the other hand, you know, there's huge, all the problems I mentioned earlier are ones where um, I think design proteins could do a huge amount of good. So, um, uh, both in terms of protecting from infection and all the other areas we've discussed. So I think while there is perhaps some potential of misuse, uh, given the threats that nature already has come up with, 
I think there's far more potential for, for good than harm. Uh, as we, last couple of questions here, look to uh, wrap up this amazing episode, David, uh, any closing thoughts or shameless plugs you'd like to share with our audience? Uh, I think it's really a tremendously exciting time for protein design. And I, I hope that all of you can, can be involved in some way. There's, you know, we're, we're building companies. Um, we are, you know, that, that, um, uh, you know, we're one of our, our biggest limiting resources kind of funny is not capital or ideas or the technical side It's actually, uh, management. So, um, uh, if there are entrepreneurs out on listening to this who would like to get involved, please let me know. Um, and uh, more generally, you know, keep your eyes open. I think it'll be, be a very exciting time. And I think there'll be many opportunities for people to get involved with the next phase of protein design. Fantastic. And you've touched on so many amazing topics and the companies you've worked on today. Uh, how can our audience learn more about your work? The audience can follow the Institute on Twitter. Our handle is UW Protein Design. We also have um, uh, on our website, gives a pretty good overview of what we're doing. And uh, there's, there's been quite a bit of media coverage, which, um, uh, which one can find on, on the website as well. Amazing. Thank you, David, for a fantastic episode. We're very grateful for your time. Appreciate you joining us once again. Thank you. Well, thank you very much. That was fun. Thanks for tuning in, BIOS community, sharing a quick shout out from Amazon Web Services. The AWS Startups team provides dedicated resources, expertise, and credits to help healthcare and life sciences startups grow and excel. We help startups build for scale, overcome technical and regulatory challenges, and accelerate time to market by opening doors and creating business opportunities. To learn more about these resources, including how to access $25,000 in AWS credits through our partnership with BIOS, please email hcls-startups at amazon.com. Thank you for listening to the BIOS podcast. If you enjoyed it, please leave a review on your favorite podcasting platform. For more content, please visit bios.community or alix.vc.